Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. Yeah, and today we want to do one of our kind of deep dives on sort of historical deep dives, but it's a little more relevant this week. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, we're going to take a look at the 1918 uh, influenza uh, epidemic, pandemic. And um, I guess to start with, maybe we can talk about kind of what did the world look like um, both inside and outside Alaska around that time. So in 1918, there's this epidemic. We, uh, it's also called the Spanish flu. Um, one of the reasons it was called the Spanish flu is because we're in the middle of World War One, and all the newspapers in Germany and the United Kingdom and France and the United States um, are basically censored. And so they're not allowed to write about this flu that's wiping out their populations. And so Spain, a neutral country, was able to write about it, and because of that, it created this perception that they were particularly uh, hard hit, and so it became known as the Spanish flu, when in fact it probably didn't even originate in Spain. By the time it passed, uh, it killed somewhere between 1% and 6% of the world population, so pretty big event. Let's see, 1912 was when Alaska first became a territory uh, under the Organic Act, so we're, we're a, a a new territory, not yet a state. You know, in, in terms of technology, uh, radio hadn't really been put into widespread use. They were able to do, uh, you know, t- things like Morse code and stuff like that. But the, but um, you know, the sort of radio that we're used to with a radio station and a, and um, kind of commercial radio or public radio that reaches people in their homes wasn't available at the time. So. Um, people are probably getting their news uh, just word of mouth or through newspapers or uh, through people visiting their communities. Yeah, there's a lot of newspapers at the time. Um, You go back and, you know, one of my kind of great sort of passions, I guess, or great sort of, I don't know, maybe reveals me as a nerd, but like I really love going through all of the old microfilm and microfiche of the old newspapers. So you can look back at like 1908 in Fairbanks and see what, you know, what kind of stuff they were buying and what sort of things they were talking about in the community and get a really interesting sort of picture of sort of a more sort of holistic slice of life. And I think that's kind of how we got started with this project, too, is that you um, kind of got interested in looking at some of the headlines. Yeah, I I would just like last week, I was kind of in despair a little bit. And as you go through this roller coaster of emotion, and I started reading about um, one, one of my friends posted some some news clippings from 1918. And it all felt so similar. And so I started reading more and more and more about the 1918 pandemic. And uh, it was it was kind of comforting in a way to to hear what people were going through and how similar it is to what we're going through today and to feel this feeling that like we've been through this before and we can get through this again um and so i just wanted to share that i guess i wanted to like kind of go through that process again on this podcast yeah there's a lot in there that's really familiar to today i won't get into it too much specifically you kind of see like some of the sort of frustration and fear and uncertainty and then kind of sense of community and cabin fever feeling that I think everybody's starting to get now sort of going on with all of this. And I think that's really, um, it's good to see, I guess, that what we're going through right now is, isn't unique. It's rare, but it's something that we've gotten, yeah, you're right, that we've gotten through before. Maybe it's just the idea that misery loves company. I don't know. But it's but there's some, yeah. something about it that's reassuring. And it, it was such a different time. You know, where the medical profession isn't what it was or wasn't what it is. And, uh, you know, the common treatments uh, around the world were things like whiskey or enemas or bloodlettings even. Um, so a little bit different approach to, to how this pandemic was treated. And another thing that's really uh, kind of unusual about this pandemic is that m- many of the deaths occurred in people under 65. Uh, and about half of the deaths were young adults aged 20 to 40 uh, within within the United States. So the influenza in 1918 was the H1N1 in- influenza, which is basically the mm-hmm. same, it's the same type of flu that was the swine flu in 2009. And it what it does is it causes this cytokine storm which i think is like an overreaction of the body's immune system where your your body just kind of starts right. shutting down 
Yeah, there's some sort of interesting kind of studies about that. And it's interesting because Alaska has a really unique place in understanding this because, you know, we didn't don't have like a really clear um, genetic picture of what that flu looks like. And so they were able to actually get um, some early samples from a mass grave in like 1950s from a place called Revig Mission, where I think 72 out of the 80 people die in a matter of like five days. It's like horrible Horrible picture that we will talk about a little bit later, but um, they were able to get some of the, um, and they did more recent work. And so I think in the last couple of years, there's some headlines about how um, this village held, held a lot of like keys and um, to understanding the virus. Um, but yeah, one of the things about it is that apparently it really, um, if you actually had a, a good immune system, um, you were in worse shape because your immune system sort of overreacted so sort of quickly. And that's it's still not really, I think, fully understood, but um, so they were looking at it and people with weaker immune systems um, didn't get the as severe of, of things. And so we're kind of seeing, you know, now it's sort of interesting to look at it, how it sort of differs to the coronavirus now, where a lot of it is um, the most deadly cases are where it's sort of, uh, there's what they call them, comor comorbidity Um of people. So, you know, in America, it's particularly rough because you have, you know, a lot of people with heart disease and a lot of people with kind of just bad immune systems to start, to start off with. And so, um, you know, diabetes is another big thing. And so those sort of things are sort of in America, or at least are playing out in, in uh, wider sort of death um, numbers uh, than we than other countries we're seeing as far as the demographics it's affecting. Yeah. So so we're going to start this little walk through history here. And um, one person who I think we do need to introduce, um, because I'm going to be reading from his journal occasionally, is uh, Thomas Riggs. And Thomas Riggs was the governor of Alaska, um, of the territory of Alaska in 1918. And um, he seemed like a really interesting guy. I didn't know a lot about him before delving into his journal. He uh, hired Andrew P. Kashaviroff, um, and, he, and he really did a lot of work with the um, establishing the state libraries and museums as we understand them today. Um, and he found he was the founder and the president of the Alaska Historical Association, which supported the, the museums and libraries. Um, he was a uh, honorary member of the Alpine Club. He came to Alaska like looking for gold um, many years prior to becoming governor and then went back south and then decided he liked it up here and came up and worked on the survey crew. Um, he, he helped to direct some of the surveying of the Alaska-Canadian border. Uh, and then after that, he worked on the Alaska Railroad, and he directed the Fairbanks Division of you know building the Alaska Railroad. So he was an engineer and um, just a really like hands-on guy who, when you talk about building Alaska, you know, like he rolled up his sleeves and did a lot of that. The story of Alaska is filled with characters kind of like that who, yeah, who sort of had hands in sort of several different things and kind of because they needed to. I mean, I think that's sort of an important sort of understanding of the time is that people were really, there really weren't a lot, uh, the density of people in Alaska was pretty thin. So I think that it's sort of so cheesy to talk about, but that sort of quote unquote pioneering spirit of this kind of colonialist uh, Alaskans, I think is really an important sort of backdrop for a lot of this sort of story where I think there was really a, a true sense of like self-reliance and relying on the land and the community, I think, together to get through these things. I mean, I, I, I look back a lot, you know, I looked a lot at kind of what Fairbanks was like around like 1910 when they were first sort of uh, building Fairbanks. And yeah, I mean, people were doing so many different little things and they were so reliant on each other and so reliant on kind of the shipping streams and, you know, and that sort of communication and news sort of flow was so different than what we think of now, um, where we have, you know, the internet and radio and television and all these sort of and airplanes formats that kind of quickly get around and the airplane. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and wrote a road system and that connected everywhere. And so, um, I think that's really interesting backdrop to kind of consider now. All right. So here we are, October 6th, um, reading through Thomas Riggs's journal. And he says, disturbing reports concerning Spanish influenza. And that's the first mention in his journal, um, which, which indicates that Alaska was really on the later curve of this. Um, we kind of got the second wave of, of this influenza. Um, I'm going to go on and read some more of that 
just it has nothing to do with influenza, but he also says, um, at the request of the Negro population of Juneau, I instructed the marshal to prohibit the showing of the film Birth of a Nation, which I like right there. I kind of thought, OK, that guy's all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so he put the kibosh on uh, screenings in Juneau of Birth of a Nation. And uh, there's a little bit to, that we know about him. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I think it's, it probably says a lot, actually. Yeah, it does say a lot, especially at that time. Um, so October twenty fifth, um, have recently put the territory under quarantine and have appointed Doctor Sloan in the quarantine office. We are trying very hard to keep Spanish influenza out of Alaska. We have about ten sailors in a hospital here, one or two in Ketchikan, eleven at Nome, and one or two at Cordova, but no loose cases. Um, so that's uh, it's under control. Yeah, so everything's under control. That's October 25th, and that's a really interesting journal entry because that night the Spanish flu collided with another bit of Alaska history because October 25th, 1918 was also the night the Princess Sophia sank. Um, It it grounded on Vanderbilt Reef during a storm in Lynn Canal near Juneau, and 364 people died, and it was the worst maritime accident in Alaska history in terms of uh, loss of life. This is another example of this guy rolling up his sleeves. He he went out and directed the search in the field um, and had a little patrol of small boats where there were, and he, he writes, we passed several bodies, which the other boats would pick up, but then running into so many of them, I decided that we had better uh, turn to also for here, for fear that some might drift away or that the other little craft might not be able to accommodate all the bodies. By 10 o'clock, we had picked up 30. So like this guy, this is the governor of Alaska out in a small boat stacking bodies of people from the princess Sophia. like this is i mean it was a different time it's got to be a really i mean affecting thing to happen and i wonder actually i wonder if that sort of colored some of his response to the virus then to just seeing that amount of death all at once i think that would be really hard not to walk out of that a completely changed person looking at the world in a different way well, and also like how he, you you must feel quite responsible for for people if you're the governor. You know, you I'm sure that he, and actually later on in his journal when he's in Congress, he does actually mention the Princess Sophia again. He's he brings up these kind of issues when he's talking about trying to get funding to support um, you know different programs in Alaska, um, and he you know in in a sense he's playing on people's sympathies, but he's also trying to build a safer, better state. He's a pretty clearly demonstrated need. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we'll fast forward a little bit to November 11th. And uh, he he writes in giant letters, peace in his journal, because uh, this is the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, which is Armistice Day. And uh, he says, this day, the armistice was signed between the allies and the central powers. The news came in the morning. Owning to the influenza epidemic, there could be no public gatherings, but I had the whistles blown and the bells rung. The small boys made lots of noise. So, you know, this is this is Armistice Day in the middle of this epidemic, and no one can mm. come out and celebrate. Um, so, it's like, you don't think about these things in the context of, like, how these events collide with each other. But um, that must have been something to have all this sort of, like, repressed enthusiasm. So they must have, they have been in quarantine for a few months now, right? So or it's, like, October to November, so it's two months, basically. Or a month and a half, yeah. Yeah, so we're just actually – he. it's it's not really it's – like, it's probably okay. a couple of weeks at this point in November because they're, they feel like they've got it on lockdown in late October. November now we're talking about quarantine. Um, and then uh, let's jump ahead just an, just one more day, November 12th. And, and actually now we can kind of start looking at some of these newspaper articles. Um, so November 12th, there's this Douglas article <laughs> it says, Young people restless. The young people of the island will welcome the lifting of the quarantine regulations. When conditions are again normal, they intend to f- on forming a dancing club and will have a regular place of meeting. The organization to be really a revival of the old camera club, which was so popular a few years ago when the young people with the young people during the high school days. Um, it's it's interesting reading these little like gossip columns because basically they it's just like a paragraph. Um, you'll get Douglas, November twelfth. It was reported this morning that Esther Lindstrom, who was taken home until last week, is not improving, and it may be some time before she recovers. So it's just little community updates. And I kind of like Yeah, it's that interesting. Format. I think, yeah, you see, I've seen stuff like that too, where it is like very, um, ob- just kind of observation journalism. Like it was sort of just a reporter that was out on the street that saw this thing or heard about it and wrote it down. And 
I think it's kind of an interesting time of journalism yeah. by itself. That's just a tangent from a journalist. Yeah. So November 14th, Riggs writes, Influenza is still keeping up its pace. 126 deaths among natives at Nome and 12 whites. Heidelberg, 200 natives sick, 8 deaths. Kodiak, 28 deaths among whites. Ketchikan, 280 cases, 8 deaths. Juno, 150 cases, 4 deaths. Other native villages, uh, this is kind of illegible. Rene is his wife and Lisette is his daughter and... Uh, he goes on, Renee has telephoned me that Lisette has a temperature of 103 and a half. She came in from play complaining of feeling cold. She ate dinner and still complained. Her head felt hot and her mother then took her temperature, trying to get Dr. Sloan, but without success. So that's, uh, yeah. you know, it's kind of hitting home there too. So by kind of mid-November 1918, this is really out of people's control. There's wide quarantine and there's a lot of people that have died. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it too, you know, it, it paints sort of a understanding too that, you know, everything seemed like it was going right, right? You know, they were in quarantine and trying to lock down and it still became a problem. And it, I don't, you know, was it, was it because, do you know, do you know if it was because people were relaxing from those quarantines or was it just getting around anyways? Well, I think it's that lag, you know, you go into quarantine and you don't see the effects of the quarantine for several weeks. So I think that that's... Um, probably what's playing out here is that they didn't really have things pinned down until late October, early November, and then early, then mid-November mm -hmm. comes along and you're seeing the impact. So it's kind of about this time where um, a community known as Brevik Mission is, is hit by the disease, um, and 72 out of 80 people died in a course of, I think, five days. Um, it's one of the worst one of the worst and hardest hit communities, which kind of becomes sort of the theme of this is that rural communities are hit really hard by this, um, where, you know, communities are completely annihilated in a lot of ways. Um, Brevik Mission sort of stands up as one of the sort of historically interesting ones because it had a mass grave that, you know, many decades later became a source of, you know, uh, tissue samples that contained the, the virus um, from that yeah. time. Um, but you know, it, there were countless communities that were annihilated and, and wiped out and, and many hundreds of orphans were created and it really left a very long cultural sort of trauma on people. Yeah, my buddy Lou, um, his uh, grandmother's from Wales and that was really hard hit up yeah. near Nome there. Um, in Breivik Mission, there were basically 72 residents were killed in five days and, it, and the only people left were eight children and teenagers so yeah. it was i mean it wiped out entire communities um going back to a little bit lighter take on it there's um this gossip column and, and the gossip get gets really boring <laughs> so dear mary socially juno like every other city on the coast is nil we are still in the throes of the flu and in order to help it run its course quickly, everyone is wisely foregoing all good times, is staying at home as much as possible, and when on the street is uncomplainingly wearing a mask. It seems that the epidemic situation is really improving here. Many of the families who have been ill with it are now well. So um, I think you're seeing in some of these like cities and some you know places like Juneau, the word's getting around a little bit better and people are quarantining and they're wearing masks. Um, and and in some of the rural areas, um, they're on quarantine, but the way you get information out there is by sending someone out with information. And uh, one of the prevailing theories is that a lot of the people who arrived to tell people to quarantine brought in the illness. And so oh. uh, so they basically like locked the door, but the, but the thing was already in, yeah. you know, the, so... It was interesting to me that the little social bit, though, about them wearing masks. And that was one of the things that, like, made me kind of, like, connected me to that time a little bit more. Where it's like, mm -hmm. I'm just picturing these people, like, oh, they're they're complaining that they're bored and they're wearing masks and they're, like, going through this thing that we're going through. Right, yeah. And I think that's kind of, I mean, it does speak right to the differences in and privilege that some of us have um so i think it's really important to recognize that but I, I think it does really help kind of understand some of the difficulties and sort of frustrations with right now you know i think 
Um, you know, I, on a personal level, you know, I've started to take care of my health a little bit better. I was starting to go to physical therapy for um, some nerve pain in my left arm. And it was really this week where I decided I really can't justify going out to this anymore. Um, and it sucks because, you know, for right now, I'm, you know, I can get about four to five hours of writing down before um, it, I have to like physically stop right now. But, wow. and so, but, you know, I'm, I'm also lucky that my job allows me to do that. And I'm lucky that um, I'm able to do it from home and I've been doing it from home. And I'm lucky that, you know, I'm in good health and all my friends and family are. And, so, but I think it's 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 one of those things where it's um, I think kind of understanding how to feel right now is really uncertain. I think it's kind of it's hard to really gauge about like what's an appropriate response to the difficulties of the day. And I think at the very least, like seeing back then when people are bored and cooped up and just sort of uncertain, I think is is good to know. I think. Yeah, and it kind of makes me feel a little bit better about being gentler to how I feel, um, to not sort of beat myself up for feeling feeling bad, um, to kind of allow myself to do to feel that and to be a little less productive right now is really important. I think to keeping our sanity going. Yeah, and I think that one of the um, there's this this other phenomenon that's that um, that's similar has similar parallels, and that's this idea that like celebrities kind of can get this and can sort of change people's perception. You know, I don't know why, but for some reason when Tom Hanks said he had coronavirus um, or like finding out today that Boris Johnson's in the hospital, like that kind of stuff makes somehow makes it more real yeah. um, when it's impacting, when it's impacting like my fantasy universe of these people I've, who I've never met and don't know, but you're like, Oh wow. These, people who are functionally to me imaginary and live very, very far away um, are being impacted by this. Um, I don't know why that celebrity thing matters, but it, it seems like it does. You look at like the, the day where they canceled the NBA season. I think that was really the day where everything sort of seemed to hinge on. I think that was when a lot of the national, even kind of local attitudes sort of quickly shifted from this isn't that big of a deal to this is a very big deal. And I think yeah. there's a lot of things that were happening on that day um, that played into that. But I think that it will kind of be remembered as the day, you know, one, or one of the key elements of that day was the NBA announcing the cancellation of the rest of its season. And I think everything else kind of started to flow out of that. So here we are, December 6, uh, 1918. Noted musher dies of flu. News received at Seattle that split the wind of Nome is a victim of the influenza. The following account of the death of a famous Alaskan character is taken from the Seattle Times of November 24th. Split the Wind, famous throughout the length and breadth of Alaska as the greatest musher the country ever produced, is dead at Nome of Spanish influenza, according to a number of telegrams received by Alaskans in Seattle yesterday. Split was an Eskimo about four feet tall and weighed about 80 pounds. He reached Nome some five weeks ago after spending six years in the Arctic region as guide to Valmir Stefansson, uh, head of the Canadian Exploring Expedition. He is credited with saving the lives of the noted explorer and three of his companions when they were lost on the Arctic ice flows for several months. In terms of what people were feeling in Alaska, like knowing that this celebrity had, had passed away, yeah, probably had some weight. I also like that the mushers are, are still the celebrities in Alaska for the <laughs> last hundred years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think that's interesting, you know, is, is they had thought things were under control, right? And then, you know, as time went on, it turned out it wasn't. It turned out that people were getting a lot sicker. And I think that really is a good reminder that where we're at right now, things are very likely to get a lot worse before they get better. And so taking those measures now, been probably longer than we think that we need to, is going to be really important. Yeah, so it's April 5th today when we're recording this, and um, a lot of the models I'm looking at, um, I've been kind of doing a deep dive into a lot of data um, on the coronavirus, and a lot of the models I'm looking at um, predict that around April 15th or so is when Alaska will kind of hit the peak of this of this curve, but that doesn't mean we can all just like run outside because, um, you know, if we're climbing the curve now, then, and it's going to take 
a week and a half to get to the top of the curve. Then in a week and a half after that, we're going to be right back where we are today. And it's going to take quite a bit to get down the other side. Um, right. So it's, you know, it's helpful thinking of it as kind of this like hill that we're climbing and it is going to get a lot worse. You know, we, we're going to see more deaths every day. We're going to see more hospitalizations. Um, and we just kind of have to brace for that and know that the, the quarantining and the stay at home and the hunkering down that we're doing now is helping to make that, um, less impactful. All right. What's the next item on your list? Okay. What's the next item on my list? Let's see. Douglas Island news, December 20th, 1918. Uh, so many people have the flu or bad colds, it is impossible to enumerate all. The polite question to ask your friends when you meet them now is, have you had the flu yet? If they say yes, then you must ask what they took for it. If you had it, you must describe your symptoms to them, and they will retaliate by telling you how they felt. The one who can describe the most painful symptoms is the winner of the contest, and the game is finished and, <laughs> <laughs> and the game is finished when, when two others meet. Uh, many folks have not got the flu, just bad colds, but they have some awful symptoms, uh, and can make their hair stand when they describe them. But of course they disclaim having influenza. As far as that goes, we can hardly see what difference it makes, whether it is a bad cold or awful, as long as you are good and sick. The bad parts of sort of this are also being replicated a hundred years ago too, right? Where people are trying to make a buck on it. You know, this, this week we saw our first, um, case where, uh, the Department of Law is going after somebody for um, trying to profiteer off of uh, off of uh, medical had bought, bought up hundreds of boxes of medical ma- N95 medical masks and was trying to sell them on eBay and Amazon and yeah you get hit with a twenty five thousand dollar fine per box. So another reason why we are glad the influenza is over is because we hate to pick up a newspaper and find it filled with these kinds of ads: pink pills cure flu, our liver pads will cure the flu. Apply Brown's bunion salve to the throat and cure the flu. Use Cracks corn plasters on your tonsils and avoid the flu. Wear our rubber heels and cure the flu. Funk's furniture polish will cure the flu. Avoid cheap varnishes. Villainous dandruff dope will cure the flu. Use smooth soap. It cures the flu. Eat porkless brand ham. It cures the flu. Wear our unwashable socks. They cure the flu, etc., etc. Lovely, <laughs> lovely article. <laughs> um, let's uh, step into Christmas Day, December 25th, uh, 1918. Um, advisors from Alaska, this oh, and this is Thomas Riggs again. Advisors from Alaska disclosed the fact that the influenza has placed the territory in horrible shape. About 800 deaths in the vicinity of Nome alone. I have now nearly 150 orphan Eskimos on my hand and with no money with which to care for them. Um, so this is getting real grim and, um, Thomas Riggs packs up his bags and heads off to Washington seeking, um, some more federal support. Yeah. It's important to know too, that by the end of this, Alaska will be the worst, uh, per capita, uh, death rate of any, uh, area of the world, except for, I believe Samoa is, is the only other area where it was worse per capita. Yeah. Um, so January 11th, he's he's finally made it to Washington. I guess it takes a little bit longer to get there um, <laughs> than it does today. Uh, Senator Jones of Washington introduced a joint resolution for me for $200,000 for relief of influenza in Alaska. The committee cut it down to $100,000 uh, in which manner it passed. Uh, and I expect it, it to be called by Shirley in the House at almost any minute. Today, Dr. Hamilton of the Bureau of Education and I called on the Red Cross in the endeavor to get $20,000 from them. Wadsworth of the War Council had turned me down cold. He has lands and cinemas in Alaska, I suppose. Uh, to date, I have about 450 children to take care of, and at Cordova, they are yelling at me for funds to maintain a quarantine against passengers going to Fairbanks. So it's uh, he's trying to manage things from a distance, which is very difficult, and he's out seeking money. So... I, I guess we should probably put that money in context. The uh, $100,000 in 1918 is about $1.7 million today. Really not much that he's asking for. No, yeah. It'd be interesting to see if you if we could dig in and see what he, that went to. You know, what is one point, or what is $100,000 in 1918 buy you? Well, that's interesting that you asked that because 
by January 26th, the, the House of Representatives has turned down the resolution appropriating $100,000 for relief in Alaska on account of influenza. So they didn't oh. actually get any money from the federal government, and they basically said that— um, Let's see here. Before leaving Washington, I was called before the House Committee on Appropriations and gave testimony in regard to the influenza situation in Alaska. Uh, Mr. Sissions was chairman of the subcommittee. He was cordial but not particularly enthusiastic about taking care of our Eskimo in a territory whose delegate has no vote in Congress. So they pretty plainly said, hey, guys, you don't get to vote, and therefore we don't feel like giving you much money. Um, Yeah, they really don't want to help. Yeah, so that was a long uh, trip. Non-whites either. So yeah, and I guess you know, in some ways, we're seeing some of that today, where the federal government is kind of reticent to help out states or kind of f- dragging their feet. Um, yeah, which is really unfortunate. And you know, the way this played out in Alaska was <laughs> tragic. You know, back to drumming up money. Thomas Riggs write, uh, writes that the Red Cross had allotted twenty five thousand dollars, but it is as hedged in with restrictions that I doubt if it will do us any good. The money must not be used for any authorization given, but for future destitution. All vouchers must be approved by the local chapter, and then by Hawksworth of the Bureau of Education and myself indefinitely. And finally, BM Barons must pay it. Damn such an organization. If the officials of the organization can get themselves in the limelight, all well and good. But they do not want to give an obscure community of suffering Eskimo and dying children. Uh, All the Red Cross people want is a little self-glorification on other people's money. Alaska stands first in Red Cross work of all the states and territories, and now they do not want to give us a portion of what we turned into them cheerfully and willingly. I am strongly tempted to tell them all to go to hell. (laughs) And, like, he writes (laughs) writes in his journal, go to hell, and, like, big block font i love it it's just uh you you can see he's definitely getting frustrated running into these dead ends um and he's working really hard to try and bring some money back so i think that kind of gives me newfound appreciation a little bit knowing the context for the um i think it were called the alaska packers association which is this canning um company cannery company that was uh coming up to bristol bay in the spring of 19 uh, 19 for the fish season and they arrive and find that um, influenza is already there and it's already um, it's already decimating the communities and so they look at it and they have brought with them I think a, a one doctor and a couple nurses and but a bunch of supplies for the summer and so they look at it and there's and they end up um, setting up basically care for a lot of the orphans so they take in I think it's 120 or maybe more orphans um, from influenza and and take care of them. And to know, I think, in that context of it, um, that, you know, all these other communities or even the national government or federal government were refusing to even give a dollar, uh, that this this private company was able to come in and do something, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't excuse, it doesn't really lessen any of the horrible trauma and devastation and, and kind of long-term scars that were left on these communities, but they did something where a lot of people weren't even willing to do that. Yeah, and so we're kind of on the backside of the curve here in January, February of 1919. Um, February 21st, Riggs writes in his journal, thank heaven there is no known flu now in the territory. So we're we're over the curve. The flu is gone and everyone's ready to go outside and congregate and all of these things. Um, Fast forward to March 25th, and and the next mention of influenza in the journal is more influenza. This time is it is at Skagway. On the 23rd, it broke out with 40 cases. Yesterday, 50 cases and one death. The only doctor in town is down with it. You know, I, this is sort of important for us to remember is that it's not going to be over with like, a, you know, you don't get to put like a, a fine punctuation on it. It's going to, we're going to have little flare ups and resurgences. So Talk of Alaska actually had like a really interesting piece uh, in December of 2019, you know, reflecting on the influenza of 1918. And um, they talk a lot about the history of it. And um, one of the theories brought up here is that in rural Alaska and kind of the Bristol Bay region, uh, things were kind of loosening up a little bit and communities were... um, going to Easter services. And so they think a lot of the kind of the final resurgence of it that really hit bad in April and June um, in Alaska was because of that. Um, but one of the really interesting stories from there is about how the the influenza really didn't hit communities 
in rural Alaska very evenly. So some communities like Brevik Mission in Wales were were really wiped out. It was horrible. And while other communities, um, like Shishmaref, I believe, um, closed their doors and you know, put a quarantine and enforced it with rifles. And so, um, and it's not very distant in the past. You know, there are people whose grandparents um, were orphaned by this that um, are now around. And, and people really remember this. And actually, a lot of legislators from these communities really remember it. And so, um, in the final week of the legislative session, um, Senator Donnie Olson from Golovin, which is about 100 people, um, announced that he wasn't going to be immediately returning to his home. And so let's, let's listen to the speech um, here. Uh, he talks about just sort of why it's important for him uh, as a doctor, too, to not return to that community. I can cue it up here if you want to listen to it. Just kind of Yeah, I'd love to listen to it. Okay. Senator Olson. Thank you, Madam President. I move and ask unanimous consent that I be allowed to speak on such a time as this. Senator Olson, on such a time as this. Madam President, you and I as professional as medical professionals have had the burden of having people die in our arms despite our best efforts. It weighs on a person. There are some patients out there that we will never forget the outcome of their demise. Madam President, those watching may ask why am I bringing up this morbid discussion, but I can tell you why. Our state is in the middle of a crisis, a pandemic. You and I may be called on to assist our medical, with our medical expertise and training. The COVID-19 virus is here. It is real. It will kill people. It may even kill our dear, the ones we dearly love and know. So I stand before this body requesting that we collectively heed the dire warnings that have been delivered to us by our Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Ann Zink. She is working around the clock to get the word out that these things, of the things that we need to do to protect ourselves, protect the vulnerable portion of the population, as well as to protect the state as, in whole, as a whole. I have agreed with everything Dr. Zink has recommended and, re and requested that my, and, every, and requested and my fear is that if this legislature as a whole does not recognize the time that in time, the essence that we have, that we may be responsible for people dying, not the governor, not Dr. Zink, but us. I stand with the governor and Dr. Zink in doing whatever is necessary to stop the spread and to give medical personnel the needed supplies and support. Madam President, it saddens me that even as we even if we adjourn here in the next few days, I cannot return to my home to hope back to Golovin, a place I dearly love. My children miss it greatly. I have made the decision that my family of eight will not return to Golovin right away. The risk is too high that we carry the virus back to a small village of 100 people. You may say that this is too extreme, Madam President, but let me re retell a quick story. Back in 1918, The Spanish flu epidemic hit Nome in October. By the time the epidemic was over, it had killed a large portion of the native population. Annihilated whole families, villages, and left a scar on rural Alaska that is still felt today. The village of Shishmaref in 1918 blocked off the dog team trail into its town when it heard word of the virus and posted armed guards after setting up a barrier to halt anybody going into the, in the village of Shishmaref. The guards outside the village refused to allow anybody in. These actions saved all the lives in Shishmaref with apparently, apparently without loss of life. The village of Wales was not so lucky. When the flu reached that village, there was no stopping it. It killed five out of every seven people in the village. Bodies went unburied. Families frantically reorganized to try and avoid being forced from the village. The trauma at that time was still felt today. Please, I ask you as a physician and who values human life that we and have throughout my life tried to save lives, I implore every person listening to my voice today to do what is necessary to stop the spread of this virus because our this because now is our time. 
Thank you, Madam President. Thank you, Senator Olson. Wow. Yeah, that was, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what happened. And, you know, in June, we're seeing news articles that it says, uh, the flu is now raging the Bristol Bay District and has spread to Dutch Harbor. Many are dead and victims are being reported hourly. It is stated that 60 natives around Bristol Bay District have died and scores are now ill with the flu. 80 have been stricken with the flu at Dutch Harbor in the past 30 hours. Four deaths have occurred at Dutch Harbor and the revenue cutter Unalga is now to the westward, but the doctor cannot cover the whole district. Medical aid and nurses are now badly needed with no relief in sight unless boats are, are run north direct from Seattle. And so, you know, you're, what you're seeing there is just an incapacity um, from the, the medical community at the time to be able to handle that, that number of cases. And that's, you know, that's the fear here is that we swamp our medical system, you know, that we overload our ability to care for people. Um, and then there's just a lot of extra unnecessary deaths. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if we can talk about Ann Zink for a second, but she's been doing an amazing job. I've been watching her briefings and I don't know how this governor hired someone like that because she's phenomenal. <laughs> you know, like how do we not have a snake oil salesman or like an inebriate chiropractor or something running? Things? I mean, it's, <laughs> well, I think that's I think that's sort of the, the tale of Alaska, though, right, is that we are uh, our like number one export is overly qualified professional women. Who yeah. <laughs> work for kind of nincompoop men, you know? It's kind of sort of the hallmark of many things in Alaska. I'm kind of being tongue-in-cheek about that. But I think, yeah, I think that's, you know, you look at how Alaska's handling it, and, you know, Alaska's uh, case numbers is the lowest, you know, just kind of a raw number in the nation. I'm not sure actually how it plays out um, per capita. But, you know, you look at the daily numbers, and they're not, it's not becoming exponential. It's just sort of a steady march. And, you know, there's a question about whether that's a product of the measures that we've taken or whether that's a product of our testing capacity running out or what. But um, it at least seems like things are going better than other places. So it's really, I mean, that's a, that's a difficulty in knowing and kind of judging the, the effectiveness of our measures until, because, you know, I think as you said before, we really only are seeing, you know, the, the picture we have today is a, the picture of how it was going two weeks ago, right? It's a lagging yeah. sort of understanding because of how this, um, how the virus sort of spreads and infects people. Um, but you know, it, it, you both sides, you know, at local levels and the state level have been pretty serious with with taking this. They haven't um, really dismissed it or or um, you know stoked sort of fears about whether or not it's even something to be worried about. Which is, I think, useful. Wish that our uh, congressional delegation, especially um, Mister Beer Virus, would have taken it a little more seriously. Um, but yeah, I think you know, I think that there's been a pretty decent and, and good I think even good response about how um, how just some of these ideas are explained and I think you know bringing people along to understand why social distancing is useful and why flattening the curve is something we want to do I think being able to sort of explain and get people to understand these kind of fundamental concepts is really useful and I think that um, is pretty Credible or is is good. I think that it speaks a lot to um, the seriousness which a lot of our officials are taking it. There is a lag. The thing that um, the the thing that is immediate though is we know how many deaths there are and we know how many people are hospitalized and mm-hmm. um, you know those numbers are pretty low and we're we're doing fairly well as a state. But it could all change. You know, it could um, it, just as we saw in in nineteen eighteen. Uh, Alaska wasn't really impacted by the by the first outbreak of the flu, and it was m- much farther along in the tail end that we that we got hit, and we got hit the hardest of anyone. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's it could be that we do really well at containing things, and then tourism season overwhelms us with visitors, right. uh, and we you know even if it's not on the order of the millions of visitors we get every year, what if a hundred thousand people show up in Alaska and some 
non-zero percentage of them are carriers. And, right. you know, what is that going to look like this summer? So it's, you know, we still have to be vigilant and we still have to be concerned. Um, but it does feel like we're on a good path right now. Um, you know, I think there's some good reporting, too. Uh, the ADN did a report about, um, again, Bristol Bay's concerns going ahead, um, especially because um, the governor has ruled the um, fishing industry is essential business. So people are pretty easily still able to get in to Bristol Bay, you know, for the cannery jobs, for the fishing jobs, seasonal fishing jobs and all that sort of stuff. And there's a lot of concern about their possibility of bringing in the disease with them. And then, of course, the extremely limited capacity out there. So um, it's going to be something interesting to watch. I, I feel like there hasn't been a full, really serious plan built for it for rural Alaska at this point. So it's sort of a piecemeal approach where some communities are, are able to lock things down. Others aren't. You know, there are communities that have closed their doors to any visitors right now. Um, I think it requires some of them. They have this to get back in. You need to have be able to return with a uh, a test of, of negative, you know, negative test for COVID-19 as well as you basically um, quarantine on both both sides of your trip to return to the community. Um, they're taking it very seriously in some of them, but, you know, other communities just don't have the powers to be able to lock it down in that way. And I think some of the hub communities, Dillingham, Bethel, are probably particularly concerned about it. And so that's, you know, where a lot of the testing of this administration, I think, is going to happen. And I think it's unfortunate that so far it's been, I think, pretty disappointing. The governor's sort of attitude and relationship with rural Alaska. Um, you look at sort of the handling of the VPSO stuff uh, and some of those other elements around the edges. And it's a little concerning that they will or will not get the kind of attention that, you know, I think is really needed right now. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's bring this to a close, and we'll say farewell to uh, Thomas Riggs and, until another time. Um, I'm going to read one last journal entry, and uh, I just like it because it's uh, Wickersham beef. Wickersham Judge Wickersham is a pretty <laughs> prominent figure in Alaska history, and Thomas Riggs hated him. Uh, he writes, uh, "Wickersham has just left here. Always speaks of me as little Tommy Riggs. People seem to take it as quite a joke." Because I am not so very little after all. (laughs) (laughs) His love, there's, his journal is filled with digs at Wickersham, calls him a villain and says he should be in prison. And uh, just, you know, he's going to (laughs) Wickersham's swearing in ceremony and just hating every minute of it. And, oh, we're stuck with this guy for two more years. Um, Anyways, I just like the, seeing some of those glimpses of kind of humanity and political reality and remembering that, History is full of humans, and we haven't really changed that much. Mm-hmm. I also like, you know, and, and I like all this sort of looking back at how reporters were handling the news back at the time. I think there's a very, like, there's a there's a sense of humor in a lot of the reporting, or, or like oh, yeah. these sort of little columns. And there was, I think, kind of, I like to think of what I'm doing with a blog as a little more close to that, where it is sort of this mixture of, observation and humor and a little bit of snarkiness with it all. And I think that is kind yeah. of what you see back in some of this report and some of these old reports about what was going That's, on at the time. And it gives a really great yeah. color about what it was like to live in Alaska for, for really for regular people at the time. And I think that was really, it was really interesting. And I think too, and another thing that we should probably actually touch on a little bit is the way they wrote about non-whites was pretty bad, too. You know, there was kind oh, of absolutely. the language around that was really kind of inexcusable. And uh, I think it's just important to recognize that, just rec- recognize that, I think, and, and sort of remark that, you know, I'm glad that we don't write about people in that way, that we are at least a little bit better about trying to at least rep- refer to people about how, as to how they they want to be um, talked about. And so I think just being a little more recognizing of the language we use and the lay, way it might be loaded, um, even, you know, unintendedly um, is really uh, a thing that we should need to be aware of. Yeah, there's there's definitely a heavy subtext in all of this reporting that like, oh, wow, all these Alaska natives are dying. At least it's not us. And, yeah. Um, and that's pretty gross. Yeah. 
and you get the sense that that there's you know two sides of the street that these populations aren't living together or coexisting Mm -hmm. Uh, they're sort of like in the same spaces but they're living in different communities um and i think that like picking up on that you you can kind of understand why the alaska native population was hit so hard is like it's not they weren't integrated into the white population and so when these quarantine measures came out or when there was medical help it was it was really easy to ignore them yeah i mean you look at you know the refusal of the house to give them money the refusal of red cross to be particularly useful with their funding um yeah i mean i think it was it was a big reality of the time and and i think you still see some of those attitudes today unfortunately and i think um, yeah yeah, you know, I, I would really hope that we can continue to elect people who think about this in a more open-minded way, in a more equitable and fair and and just way. It's kind of been coded in Alaska in terms of like rural, rural and urban Alaska. Like yeah. that's sort of like a a coded way that we speak about it. I think. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree totally. I think that a lot of the and I think a lot of the refusal to help rural communities in the budget process right now is to me pretty abhorrent you know especially the way that they talk about it the way that they say oh people in rural alaska choose to live in rural alaska is to me just really unforgivable um way of looking at it and you know we they choose there to live there so they should shoulder the higher costs of living in their ancestral lands you know it's just we, we could go on to this line forever yeah. but it just yeah I, th- I would hope better for alaskans as we move forward i think some of those attitudes are really outdated and really disgusting so yeah all right well i'd like <laughs> to end on a positive note if we can yeah I, let's talk some more about games i've been having a lot of fun playing games with people like so i took your advice and i tried that jackbox games the other uh-huh. night and i I did a screen share and my friends like tapped in with their phones and it, we played trivia and it was a blast. Um, I also tried this. Have you ever tried tabletop simulator? I have not. I, I think I have it on my wish list on pretty much every yeah. platform. I've looked at it and not yet tried it yet. Well, I think it's on sale right now. So I just picked it up for half price and it is it just basically a physics simulator where you play board games within it so you're still moving the pieces around and like flipping over the cards and you uh-huh. can like bump bump stuff off the table on accident if you <laughs> and and it's just um it was really great we sat down and started playing it and it felt a little clunky at first and but basically someone has like created all the board game pieces within this little world and you move them around and play the game and so you've got this little like hand and you can pick things up and move them and roll dice and flip cards and it was really fun and after a while you know after getting into it for about 15 20 minutes it really felt like i was sitting around the table playing a board game with my friends oh cool all right i'll see you soon matt uh goodbye alaska bye alaska Thanks for listening. This is Pat Race, and if you want to support this podcast or any of my other creative projects, you can become a patron of my work at patreon.com slash alaskarobotics, and you can find Matt Buxton's work at midnightsunak.com. Our theme song is by Marion Call, and Alaska is awesome. (laughs) 